podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. In 2003, two Aussie film school classmates made a low-budget horror film called Saw and hoped that it might end up in DVD stores one day. Now James Wan and Lee Winnell are two of the most successful horror filmmakers in Hollywood after Saw became a cultural phenomenon and led to seven sequels. Proving they're not one-hit wonders, the pair's 2010 original horror film Insidious led to three sequels and grossed a total of US $590 million. Writer and actor Lee Winnell made his directorial debut with the third Insidious film and now he's written and directed his own take on The Invisible Man, starring Handmaid's Tale actress Elizabeth Moss as a woman convinced her dead abusive boyfriend is alive and hunting her, but nobody will believe her. I was lucky enough to sit down with him recently in Hollywood to talk about Lee's amazing journey. Here's Lee. Lee Winnell, welcome to Aussies in Hollywood. Thank you for having me. You're a Melbourne boy, is that right? Yes, I am. Well, there's different versions of Melbourne. You know, I think a lot of if, if, a lot of people think of Melbourne, you know, inner city Carlton, these bohemian people walking around, you know, waiting for their tram. I grew up in outer suburban Melbourne, which is a different version. So I'm a Melbourne girl, but I was an East St Kilda girl. So. Yeah, so you had a very bohemian uh, inner city childhood. I was out there in uh, Glen Waverley. Oh, near the footy ground. Footy, cars... And Iron Maiden. <laughs> <laughs> so talk a little bit about your childhood and when you were, what you were exposed to in terms of um, film and television. I know your dad was a cameraman, was that right? He wasn't a cameraman. I think I've seen that written down somewhere. He was an editor. Good, we're going to get rid of all of those Yeah, things. the lies. Yeah, my dad worked at the ABC. He started when he was very young. It was back in the time when TV stations offered apprenticeships and would actually train young people through everything. They would teach them how to operate camera, how to edit, how to do everything. And then the theory was that after a few years you would pick the thing you were best at. So from a very early age I was kind of exposed to the inner workings of television. You know, I got to see behind the Iron Curtain and see camera operators. And I think people then and still people now have a lot of um, stars in their eyes about, you know, to this day if someone sees somebody shooting a news report, they'll, you know, jump up and down in the background and say, try to get their face on television. Like... I wasn't one of those people. To me, it was just normal to, to go to work with my dad and see news reporters and stuff. So maybe that had something to do with where I am now in terms of exposure at least. But um, I remember being obsessed with movies and pop culture in general from a really young age. Um, you know, everyone around me loved Star Wars, but I loved it to an, an unhealthy, mentally unsafe level. You mean love it in terms of how many times you watched it or did you collect toys or did you... All of the above. Every other kid my age when I was four or five years old loved Star Wars. But I don't know how many of them thought about it 24 hours a day laying awake at night whose every waking thought related back to it. Like it was... It was. I was obsessive. I was. I. I still am. But I, I. I would get obsessed if my dad was here. I feel like I should be doing this podcast with my dad, because he could talk about my obsessions. I would go through these phases that would last for about six months. Like I'd be obsessed with Sherlock Holmes for six months. That's all I could talk about. I would just eat and sleep Sherlock Holmes, and then all of a sudden it would move on to Conan, 
I remember having a Conan the Barbarian obsession and I would watch the movies and collect any comic book about Conan that I could find and I went through a vampire obsession, a Dracula obsession, that was a big one. So it just it just seemed to be my personality to to get really obsessed with this stuff. Well, it sounds like it was perfect kind of early research for all the things yeah. you were doing now. I've managed to monetize my obsessions, which is great. <laughs> so you obviously have vivid memories of those films and and the way they affected you. When did you decide that that was a career path? And you've been involved in so many different areas of that. Which was first, the acting? Yeah, I think acting came f- first. You know, I was I was the annoying kid that would make the relatives sit on the couch at family gatherings and put on a play for them. <laughs> I would I would recruit my hapless, innocent brother to be the supporting actor in these plays about murder, mostly. And so I think my parents were like, okay, let's stick him in, a, in an acting class and let him get some of this out of his system. It wasn't until I was in high school that I started to see filmmaking as a thing you know I I think up until that point when I was 15 or so I just absorbed movies the way people do without a thought about who puts them together you know you concentrate so much about who's on the screen I think that's why you gravitate towards acting and I had a particular teacher that I'm still friends with to this day uh, Mr Fields he he loved movies he was like you know there's a cool teacher at every high school you got the strict teachers and then you got that one that like uh We'll, we'll talk to the kids on their level, you know. And uh, that was Mr. Fields. You know, he was the cool guitar-playing teacher. and he, he was in bands and things. And I remember I took this class and he started showing us um, – he showed us Psycho and we talked about Psycho for a few months, but he was breaking the film down shot by shot. And he was talking about why Alfred Hitchcock would place the camera in a certain way and I'd never had someone break down a movie that way. So I can really credit him with kind of rewiring my brain away from – performing into filmmaking and being on that side of the camera. You know, thank God he did because I went to film school instead of acting school. So you were – was it RMIT you were at? Yeah, RMIT, yeah. That's, I went to RMIT. I okay. got my BA in journalism there. That old war horse. <laughs> I still go back there sometimes for the, for the memories. I'm a very nostalgic person so if I'm in Melbourne I'll often go for a walk. Well, they'd probably love to have you come back and talk to the students too. I don't know. I don't think so. They didn't seem like the uh, most inviting uh, group, in, 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 at least in, the, in, in, in my course that I studied, media, media arts, yeah. So uh, you met uh, your – I don't know if you call him your best friend, James Wan, but <laughs> you met James uh, at that point when you were both there. Can you tell me – take me back to at what point did you guys meet and how quickly did you sort of – begin collaborating well, we met on the first day you know there's that nerve-wracking first day of university where you're like ah, you know this isn't high school anymore this is the big leagues and it was weird the students they weren't all our age we were the two youngest students it was a lot of mature age students and they said it was rare that they take students straight out of high school so James and I were like these exceptions to the rule but why so do you think that was I remember them saying, the, the, the people that ran this course were saying that they just didn't want that high school mindset. They wanted people who had matured a little bit. And I remember a lot of the people who were, we, we were in class with us were in their 30s, 40s, or much older. It was, it was pretty strange. But why do you think they made the, you and James the exceptions? Pure talent. Well, I'll tell you this. With James, it must have been pure talent because I remember 
to get into this course, you had to. It was all based on your resume. It wasn't about your your marks in high school, or your grades, or anything, or test results. It was about what you had done, your portfolio. And James, I remember seeing this short film that he made in high school, and it was incredible. It was this stop motion animation. With me, I'm not so sure. I don't know. I don't know if my dad sent them a packet of money. (laughs) I don't know what happened, but I'm thankful they did because it's one of those, you know, sliding doors moments in your life where you look back and say, well, wait, if I hadn't met James, would I be sitting here talking to you? What would I be doing? Um, I'm very thankful that I got in, yeah. Did you come up with ideas immediately and start collaborating or was school just like college was college and then it wasn't until later that you... Yeah, well, we were always friends and we were doing our separate thing, you know, because obviously when you're in school, you're you're working on your own stuff. It wasn't until after we finished university that we really started working together. We would help each other out, hang out. I made the world's worst student film of all time. Oh, couldn't was, have been that bad. It was that bad. It was it was called The Demise of Fallon Thomas. That was the name of it. It was about a punk band who kills the people that come and see their shows. <laughs> exactly. That was the reaction of the faculty yeah, teaching <laughs> stuff. And uh, uh, James actually didn't have time for a feature, uh, a, a short film. He made a feature film. That was his sort of thesis project, was a 90-minute feature which was such a classic indicator of his ambition even then. It was like not good enough to make a short. I'm going to make a feature. But then when we finished school, you know, that thing happens when you finish film school where you're greeted by the cold wind of reality. <laughs> like, you know, this this warm, nurturing place that gives you all this free equipment. Suddenly that goes away and you're just out in the world. And, you know, you know this was the late 90s. Right now I have a device in my pocket that can shoot beautiful HD images, you know, Back then you didn't have that and making films was expensive and camera equipment was expensive. So we were really like out in the world and uh, we kicked around for a few years doing a few odd jobs. We made some shorts together. Uh, I would always be the writer. James would direct it. Um, I would usually appear in it. That was sort of our, our um, you know, splitting of the duties was I, I would write the script and he would direct and I was great with that. I was like, strength in numbers, man. I'm happy to write with you directing. And I was a big fan of James even then. I'm the first James Wan fan. No matter how many James Wan fans are out there, I'm the OG fan. And so I was happy to be writing screenplays because he didn't enjoy screenwriting. Um, and then after a few years of doing that and becoming annoyed, we were like, let's just make a feature and pay for it ourselves. Let's do the, you know, Blair Witch Project had just come out and it, it inspired us to just go for it and make our own film and that's what led to Saw. You came up with the idea for Saw together or how long did it take? It took a long time because the first thing we had was the budgetary restraints. Like it's almost we had a, we had a, a piece of paper with a plan on it but no storyline. So the plan was let's make a film for $10,000, two actors and it all takes place in one room. <laughs> so those are, those are some pretty hard parameters to work within. It took us about a year before we came up with an idea that we, that we liked. We went through every bad idea that can be set in one room. Um, I remember at one stage I pitched an idea. It was an, an elevator, people stuck in an elevator. And, and there was a murder happening. Like the murder mystery was who on this elevator? <laughs> who is guilty? <laughs> you know, it's five people stuck in an elevator and one of them's a killer. And then inevitably the other person would say, yeah, not good enough. And you'd be heartbroken about that. And then a week or so would go by 
And then James would come up with an idea and I would reject it. And then I would come up with an idea and he would reject it. And we went, we played this game of tennis for a year before he called me one day. I was at home and he, I just missed out on an acting role. I'd auditioned for it. I'd been called back. I was really confident. And then all of a sudden I get the call from my agent. They've gone with someone else. I was so heartbroken. And the day I got that phone call was the day James called me and said, I've got it. What if we have a film with these two guys, they're chained up in this bathroom and he basically pitched the sort of bare bones version of Saw. And I was like, that's it, that's the one. And I went off and wrote the screenplay. And it took me a long time because I'd never written a feature screenplay. I'd written plenty of shorts. So anyway, that was, that was, that was it. Going back before that just for a minute, you did, you did do some hosting while you were at RMIT, I think. Yeah, I got well, a job Well, you actually ended up like, yeah, you, on ABC. And yeah. You ended up like interviewing some of the filmmakers, right? That must have been a surreal. It was really surreal. Like to be at film school and then go off to my day job and be interviewing Jackie Chan or John Woo, um, Tim Burton, Peter Jackson. I interviewed, you know, these heroes of, of mine and... Uh, I would needle them for information about how to make it. Actually, the, the ABC recently uh, made a documentary about recovery. It was like a, a history of recovery. And uh, as part of making that, the, 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 the woman who was producing it sent me some raw footage of me interviewing the director, Wes Craven. Oh, my goodness. In like 1996. We did it at this sadly now defunct place in Melbourne called Cafe Crypt. It was a horror-themed restaurant and bar i mean sounds like a good idea at the time <laughs> i wish that place still existed i would live there when i went to melbourne that's where we interviewed that's where i interviewed wes craven and uh so she sent me the raw footage it wasn't just the interview it was all the pre-roll and the b-roll and getting mic'd up and in that b-roll there's a moment where they're changing the camera position and you can hear me i'm still mic'd say to wes craven like so i want to be a horror filmmaker can you tell me a bit about it and he's giving me this advice and oh wow it's kind of a it was really trippy because i'd totally forgotten that that happened and she said you should really skip ahead to 5 minutes and 14 seconds i think you'll find it interesting and it was basically me asking him for advice on how to do what james and i eventually did did you remember what he said you know what i actually don't it was it was kind of vague but he was like you know you have to really love it and you have to concentrate on making it good because there aren't many good horror films. Definitely stuff I took to heart. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And um, you had a role in Matrix Reloaded, yeah, right? Was That, Very that was a few role. years before Saw. So you were out of school. You were thinking, I'm going to be an actor. Is that well, what I was, was happening? I was wanting to be a filmmaker but I was still auditioning and, and I would go to these auditions. I kind of didn't have one path. That was the difference between James and I. Is James had this single-minded goal of being a film director whereas I was all over the place I didn't know what I wanted I I, I, I was in I, I loved acting I loved writing directing a bit of everything I didn't quite know what was happening and um, I ended up getting this small role in the, the Matrix sequel which was like the greatest moment of my life because I was standing on this set I loved the first Matrix film so to see all that equipment and to see how one of those giant movies gets made was really eye-opening. What was your scene? Were you with Keanu Reeves or...? I wasn't. I was actually with another actor who's, who's sti who was still acting named Socrates Otto. Uh, I believe he's the son of Barry Otto. Oh, okay. Um, he and I had a scene together and I can give you my lines and I'll even do it in the accent. It was like, how much time? And then he would say, 12 seconds. And then I would say, shit. There was an American accent coach on the set 
And I do remember one argument. That one of my lines was on paper. It said incoming capitalized exclamation mark. So I said incoming. And she would stop me and say, you know, in America, we don't say incoming. We say we put the emphasis on in. So you got to say incoming. And I and I said, no, I've seen a lot of movies. I'm pretty sure it's incoming. You know, and she was like, no, no, no. I'm an American. You're an Australian. It's incoming. And I've spoken to other Americans and they've backed me up that she was wrong. Oh. I th- there's an American accent listening? coach out there who's a complete fraud. She's actually from Toowoomba. She's put on an accent and she doesn't know how to say incoming. She <laughs> thinks it's incoming. If you're listening, accent coach, I was right and you were wrong. <laughs> and you're here and she's probably still in Toowoomba. She might be in Toowoomba now, yes, exactly. <laughs> there's a few flights incoming to Toowoomba tonight that maybe she should get on. I first met you, um, I think, when Australians in Film gave you and James uh, one of the very first breakthrough awards that we started. That's right. It was like um, a boomerang, I believe. Yes, it was a dinosaur design boomerang. Yes. And um, at that point, it, it was, you know, there was a smaller group of Aussies who were kind of making it over here. I mean, for the two of you, can you talk about that journey from making this little movie on your own to at what point did you realise that this, had, this was going to change everything. There was a few moments that really kind of broke our brains. Um, it, you know, I, I, th- I think the film and that experience of making Saw kept exceeding our expectations. Like our goals were much smaller than, than, than the end result of what happened. Which is oh, great you because you don't hear a, that normally. Yeah, exactly. It, it was almost like somebody who who said to themselves, you know, I want to win this local bike race in uh, in Glen Waverley, Australia. I'm going to win the bike race, and then they accidentally win the Tour de France. Like we were hoping, we were hoping we could release a movie on video. That was our big goal. Like you got to remember, in, in in 2003, video stores were still a thing. And there was this whole um, area of straight-to-video films that would bypass the theatres and come out on video. And oftentimes they would be like good horror films, but you know, just because they didn't get into theatres doesn't necessarily mean they're bad movies. And that was our big goal for Saw. If we could walk into a video store and see our film on the shelf, we would have been happy. Then suddenly we find out the film's getting a theatrical release. So then our goal becomes, well, we're going to be a cult movie. Like no one will see the film, but those that do will love it. And then the film was a hit. And so real life kept going well beyond our own goals. And so it was a weird experience. I think, I think the moment where I thought, wow, this is something big's happening here is when we went to the Toronto Film Festival. So that was September of 2004. We'd finished the film 10 months ago um, and there was 10 months of twiddling our thumbs in Australia waiting and then we fly out to Toronto we go to the screening. It's a midnight screening. We pull up to the theatre and there was a line around the block of people waiting to get into the movie. And I remember sitting in this like limousine that they had us in and I was like, oh, my God, look at that line of people waiting to get into our film. And the Lionsgate publicist said, no, that's not the line of people waiting to get in. That's the line of people hoping for spare tickets. That's the spare ticket line. 
the the people who are seeing the film are already sitting in the theater, and that that was the moment. Like I still get goosebumps thinking about that. It's like whoa, like this has really grown into something. But it was interesting. I mean, yeah, we were never part of the Australian club, so we never felt. I think a lot of people that move from Australia to LA, they reach a ceiling in Australia. They're already famous in Australia. You know, they're they're a soap star or something, and then they come over here and they may be an unknown quantity in Los Angeles but they can't walk down the street in Australia, right? Well, that wasn't the case for James and I. We were nobodies in Australia too. <laughs> and so, you know, we would go to these parties, you know, maybe twice, these Australian parties, and it would be like, you know, you'd see these famous faces. We were in the corner. Nobody was talking to us. They all knew each other and they're all hobnobbing together in this little gum leaf mafia, <laughs> as it was called. We were well outside that. You know, I know more of those people now. Like a lot of those people at that party who were like, you know, elbowing past me to get to Naomi Watts, now they'll say hi. I'll be like, hey, it's Lee, you know. But but back then we we didn't have any connections in Australia. We weren't friends with anyone. You know, I didn't have Nicole Kidman's phone number in my my you know in my phone. It was it was like it was good. It was kind of like underdog we were underdogs. And um do you remember when you met some of those people for the first time and uh, at what point that they did know who you and James were and you realised that that there was a mutual admiration? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I do remember um, I do remember being at a party. I actually think it was the after party for the premiere of Fury Road. And I remember being there and uh, I was only invited because a good friend of mine, Angus Sampson, was an actor in that film and he couldn't go. He was doing a TV show. So I accompanied his wife to the premiere. And we went to the after party. And, of course, they spent a ton of money. They shut down Hollywood Boulevard and set up this circus tent. And there was fire-breathing people walking around on stilts and huge buffets of food. It was one of those really expensive Hollywood parties. And so I'm there. And, you know, I, I love the movie. And I remember... Uh, um, Nash Edgerton and Joel Edgerton came over and were like talking to me and and they were like, you know, really nice. You know, I remember Nash Edgerton saying, oh, it's really cool what you've done, you know, with the Saw movies and everything. And I was like, okay, that, that might have been one of the first times that one of my Australian film industry peers was like saying something complimentary and sort of acknowledging that some, this journey that James and I had gone on. So obviously there were a lot of sores and then uh, <laughs> you that. weren't involved with all of them directly. I wrote right? three of them. Yeah. Um, the first one I'm so affectionate about, my heart and soul was in that movie. Um, the second two saw films, there's a line in The Naked Gun when Priscilla Presley says, I was young and needed the money. <laughs> and that applies. <laughs> that applies to those saw sequels. Not that I didn't put my heart and soul into them, but, um, yeah, I was in my 20s and I was like, okay, sure, I'll write you two more movies. Um, and I'm thankful to those films. I mean, we inadvertently created the millennial version of Freddy Krueger. Right. And aren't they sort of doing a, some kind of a weird reboot? Yeah, they are. It's with Chris Rock, which I actually can't wait to see because the Chris Rock factor makes me very curious. No, it's called Spiral, I guess. Yes, Spiral from the Book of Saw. So now they've gone into the universe, the Saw universe. It's still, it's cool. I mean, yeah. to me, I grew up going to sleepovers and watching like, you know, Hellraiser 3 and Nightmare on Elm Street 4. I mean, that's what I grew up on. So 
to 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 have created a new version of that for a younger generation today is cool. You know, I'm 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 very affectionate about it. And not just the Saw franchise, but then you came up with Insidious. Mm-hmm. Um, after Saw, was there a lot of pressure on you guys about where are you going to go next? What are you going to do? Who oh, are you going to yeah. work with? Can you talk about what happens after you've gone through a journey like that? It's an interesting experience. I mean, it's it's definitely a first world problem, but you kind of get your ass kicked a little bit. Like we were very naive. We did Saw and we we had our 15 minutes of fame off the back of Saw. You know, you, you do this little victory lap around town. You go into a lot of offices where a lot of people in, in, in suits are telling you that you're amazing and that they want to work with you. And it's very seductive. Um, I think we ended up signing a deal to make a film before we were ready. You know, our, our agents pressured us into it there's a lot of forces around you pressuring you to capitalize on this thing you know nobody has a crystal ball so for all they know that's all you've got in the tank and so they want to milk it yeah. dry yeah so we were kind of pressured into making this film we made a film for universal dead silence which hardly anyone saw has a tiny cult following online shout out to the dead silence crew um but it's not a film that i think we were ready or passionate to make it's something we felt obligated to make and, and, and I, I, I learned every lesson that I keep within me today from that movie, from that experience. You know, I realized I never wanted to do anything because someone else told me to or because someone else thought it was a good business decision. You know, uh, there's uh, these forces around you, they try and sort of cajole you into doing what they want you to do for business reasons, which is the worst reason to do anything creative. But I'm glad I got it out of my system. I mean, it sucked at the time to be writing this film and not having a fun experience. But in hindsight, I learned so much from it that I think it was invaluable. So we were wandering around in the wilderness. I mean, even though Saw had been a successful movie, people weren't knocking on our door. I don't. I think that. I don't think Saw had much industry respect. I think that 14-year-olds in Ohio loved it, but studio heads. And, um, you know, tastemakers, they didn't have that DVD on their shelf. You know, there's this thing that James and I refer to as industry famous. It's like um, the old saying, you know, nobody bought the Velvet Underground's first album, but everybody that did started a band. <laughs> like their right. influence is yeah. way outsized to their Im- monetary impact, right? So yes. this happens. Like, you know, a friend of mine, David Michaud, made this great film, Animal Kingdom. Now, about 25 Americans saw Animal Kingdom, but they were all t- tastemakers. You know, Brad Pitt was one of those 25 people. So David Michaud was getting a lot more traction in this town off the back of Animal Kingdom than we were off a movie that grossed $50 million in the US and $100 million worldwide. Yeah. Nobody was knocking on our door. I don't think the, the people that were knocking on our door wanted us to make like the brain eating parasites or, you know, uh, they wanted the, they wanted us to make gory horror movies. And so w- I think we just wandered around the wilderness for a long time, kind of wondering. And finally what we did after a few years in the wilderness was realise we were going to have to go back and do Saw all over again, going to have to make our first movie again. Mm-hmm. And that's when we met Jason Blum. That's exactly what he does. He uh, took us into his office and was like, I know you've been kicked around by Hollywood, but I'm here to embrace you with my loving arms. (laughs) 
and uh, we that's when we made Insidious. Was it was basically like the same budget as Saw, and it was another million dollar film with another twenty day shoot, and we had to kind of reestablish ourselves. And you were acting, you know, on and off in some of these films as well, and mm. had bigger roles in some. Um, what did acting mean to you, and at each at each point, and and like, what does it mean to you now? I think back then, it's something I really desired. I loved acting and performing. Um, once you go through that pilot season mill, it's it really takes the sheen off it. Like it, going through a pilot season and auditioning relentlessly made me want to not act. I still loved acting. I just didn't like the getting there. The, the process of getting a role was abhorrent to me and I'm terrible at auditions. Every actor says that but they're lying whereas I'm telling the truth. Um, and so I just slowly lost interest in it. You know, I in, in 2013 I, I wrote two films, The Mule and Cooties. It was, one was a horror comedy and one was an Australian movie set in the 80s that I co-wrote with uh, Angus Sampson. And I had good roles in both of those films and I was like, I kind of said to myself, this is my last hurrah in acting. And I loved doing those roles. I really had fun. But, you know, it wasn't like those movies weren't huge box office hits so the phone wasn't ringing off the hook with acting offers. So I think that I was like, that's kind of it. So today, to me, I've, I've really moved away from acting. I'm much more interested in filmmaking. Well, you did have a, a, a role in Aquaman. I don't, can't imagine how that happened. but Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I auditioned and I was the strongest. That's what <laughs> happened. They, it was down to me and one other guy. And uh, I just had what it takes. Um, <laughs> that must have been fun for you to be able to do that. It's good. Yeah, James, James basically said, do you want to come and hang out in, on the Gold Coast for a few days? And I was like, yeah, sure. And it was really fun to see a movie of that scale, you know, to be on the, to be on the set that size because it kind of knocks you over just how much money and, and the resources they have. Um, so it was fun, yeah. And it was good to catch up with James. I mean, to catch up with James these days, I have to do a cameo in one of his movies. Right. And it was, it, it was funny, that night we went back to his hotel room, we're hanging out and it was just like it was when we were in film school, like we would stay up till three o'clock in the morning talking about movies and that's what we did. And he even had work the next day. I was like, shouldn't you be going to bed? You know? <laughs> and we're just talking, talking and it was like we did all this catching up and um, it was great. I mean, I, I really feel like I've gone down this new path of directing and he's very encouraging of that, you know. Uh, I can't wait for him to see uh, The Invisible Man. Yeah. But, um, well, you directed the third Insidious. That was your first yeah. film as a director, right? What, had you been thinking about it for a while? Why did you wait so long or why did you do it then? I had been thinking about it but, well, first of all, working with James, I was like, well, you know, if you're <laughs> in a band with John Lennon, you let him write the songs. Like I was like, he's the director and I was happy with that role. It was It was when he went off into blockbuster world and did Fast and Furious 7, I believe, was the first sort of giant blockbuster movie he directed. When he did that, that was when I had to re-examine what I wanted to do with my life because I had been so reliant on us as a duo. I saw us as a team and I kind of had an identity crisis. It was like a breakup because I was like, wow, what do I, what do, I do now? And... I remember being a bit kind of lost for a while thinking, what should I do? Should I write a film for myself to direct? And Jason Blum was like, 
he already had seen the future. You know, he, he, he thinks 10 steps ahead. So he already knew what I was going to do before I did. And he, he, he called me up and said, uh, yeah, I know what you're going to do. You're going to direct, uh, insidious chapter three. And, uh, you know, with directing, I feel like it's like skydiving. You don't jump willingly out of the plane the first time. You have to be pushed out by the skydiving instructor. <laughs> and that's what happened. Jason pushed me into the directing chair and I discovered that I loved it. I think I probably believed too many of the horror stories about directing, which you hear a lot, you know. Um, you hear the war stories. But I found that I really enjoyed it, as stressful as it is to make a film and to get it in on time and on budget. It's fun. It's it's really an extension of writing. So I, I, after that movie, that was it. I was like, I'm, this is where I want to be. And so uh, how long did it take before Invisible Man sort of came into your world? I know it was something that everyone was pitching ideas and mm. you came up with this unique take of flipping it to the, the woman's point of view and yeah. not the Invisible Man's point of view. Right. Well, that was something I had just finished a film called Upgrade that I had directed in Melbourne and I was really happy with the way it turned out and I, I kind of had this urge to make that movie again but with more money, like make the more expensive version of that movie. And that was my whole goal. I went in for a general meeting with some of the guys at Blumhouse and Universal and they were the ones who kind of pitched me the idea of doing The Invisible Man. They didn't actually pitch it. All they suggested was the title. They asked me what I thought about this character and they asked me what I would do if I was directing The Invisible Man. And it was so out of the blue that I just blurted something out and that ended up being the basic plot for the movie, you know, was that first meeting. Um, so it really fell into my lap, this movie. Um, I'm glad it did, though, because, you know, looking back, th there was a great opportunity there to kind of modernise this villain and, and make him scary again. You know, people forget that these characters are, are horror characters. Yeah. And they started out being scary. I think the familiarity of some of these iconic horror characters makes them friendly and safe. Yeah. You know? Well, they've gotten into that comic book world in a in a way that makes them a little less dangerous. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the iconography that is used to represent Dracula is kind of hokey now. You know, the cape and the accent, you know, blood. <laughs> you know, I I, uh, I play this game with my daughter where I pretend to be a vampire and I do the accent. You know, I'm like, I'm going to drink your blood. And, you know, with the plastic fangs, <laughs> it's, it's safe. You know, my, my daughter thinks it's funny. Um, but well, when one day she'll be in therapy when she sees your yeah, films. Exactly. She, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she'll, she'll be, have you take, take years to unpack that one. But um, yeah, I, I tried to remember with this character that when it was originally written, it was written to scare people. And so I was like, okay, let's take, let's, let's, let's take the character back to that original goal and that, and that original model, you know, and um Let's not do the safe version that everybody knows, you know, the trench coat and the hat version of The Invisible Man, you know. And um, getting an actress like Elizabeth Moss to star in your movie must have been a pretty exciting moment when you realised that this was, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it kind of jumps to another level, right? Yeah, I mean, she's one of those actresses that elevates a project just with her name. Like her name is an indicator of quality. There's a few actors that can do that, you know, um, you see someone's name attached to a project and you automatically want to see it because you're thinking, well, if she's in it, it must be good. Um, there are a few actors like that, you know. You, th their very name is an endorsement. 
And so I was excited about the Elizabeth Moss version of The Invisible Man. And I guess um, for you guys, like you said, your movies have collectively probably made more money than, you know, all of Scorsese's movies or somebody right. that we all respect and have their DVDs on our shelf. Does it sort of bug you sometimes that, you know, not even the Academy would, you know, I mean, Tony Collette couldn't get noticed for Hereditary, Hereditary which I mean, was that incredible. was an oversight. And, she know, was but there were so many things like that. And, and even with this, you know, uh, Elizabeth Moss might not get the sort of attention for that performance unless maybe she will but yeah who knows um i hope you know, she how does, does it I mean, feel to sort of be in that world it's like the comedians all complain about that too you know nobody takes their work seriously right <laughs> they're Excuse like the no one, nobody takes comedy seriously <laughs> they think i'm a joke um it is i do sometimes get defensive about horror um i i, I get defensive when people who've made horror films avoid that label. I don't want to name names, but I've seen some recent movies that were clearly horror films. And then you'll hear an interview with the filmmaker or read an interview and they'll say something stupid like, well, this isn't a horror film. It's a film about family. It's like, no, it isn't. <laughs> it's a horror movie. Like, why Why are you avoiding it? You're, you're reaping all the benefits of this genre while dismissing it as if it's beneath you. It's that. That's when I get defensive. It's... You know, that call is coming from within the house. I don't mind so much critics and the Academy, and but it's when people who've made horror films try to act like it's a dirty word. Yeah. It, it just mystifies me. It's like don't reap the benefits of this genre and then throw it out as if it's beneath you. you know, yeah. You, you, you're here, you're standing here doing this interview thanks to this genre yeah. and this tradition of movies. I, I, I do wish, you know, like you, I'm, I was mystified that Tony Collette wasn't nominated, but also it's all subjective, you know. The award shows are all just smoke and mirrors and there's no wrong or right answers and so it's not going to keep me awake at night that Tony Collette did not get an Oscar nomination for her role in Hereditary. If anything, it just makes me smile like, God, this prejudice against horror films is crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, hopefully one day... They are being, you know, horror films have more of a presence at the Oscars, you know. Oh, yeah, there are some, I guess, that have crossed over in ways because yeah, they I mean, call themselves psychological thrillers. Yeah, or, exactly, they change know. the label. <laughs> like Jordan Peele getting an Oscar for writing right. Get Out was pretty amazing. Um, and there was a time when, you know, The the Exorcist was nominated for Best Picture, you know. That, that, that yeah. was a time when horror wasn't such a dirty word. But yeah. um, I can see the needle drifting back towards respect in terms of the critics. You know, you're seeing a lot more diverse horror films and you're seeing horror films featuring amazing actors like elizabeth moss she can do for this film what tony collette did for hereditary yeah she can legitimize it um working with james all that time um with him directing did you learn things that um you took into this experience with invisible man or other oh, yeah. directors or, or or could you talk about that Oh, yeah. I mean, I learnt more from watching James than I did in three years of film school, that's for sure. <laughs> Sorry, RMIT, but it's true. Um, I th and I think I ingested a lot unconsciously. It wasn't like I was sitting there with a notepad studying his every move, but you can't help but absorb it if you're standing next to him. And he just has this approach of knowing what the obvious choice would be and then avoiding it. That's why I think he's so great at making horror films any films, you know, but but in particular watching him craft scares and suspense. The, when he is crafting a scene that's supposed to be suspenseful, he's already mapped out in his mind what the obvious 
choice would be in this scene, what the audience would predict. And so he knows to go left. And uh, oh, you did a lot of uh, you did a lot of that in yeah, Invisible Man. That's, that's why there's so many scares. Spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I learned that from James. You've got to be able to outwit the audience. Modern audiences are very cinema literate. They've seen a lot of films. They've seen a lot of content, and they've absorbed the beats and tropes of drama. You know, any type of drama, and that includes horror. So. They're, they're, they're three steps ahead of you before you get there and if you if you land exactly where they predicted, there's going to be disappointment, you know. I, um, I like the tease. I like walking up to the line and then walking back and being like, ah, not quite yet. That's fun. That, to me, that's just like, you can, you know, you can stab someone in the chest really hard or you can slowly push the needle in. I'd rather push the needle in. That was a terrible analogy. <laughs> Um, before we wrap this up, I, one question I ask everybody, mm-hmm. um, people are always asking, they probably do to you too, you know, what's in the water down there? There's so many of you and, you know, all those kind of things. Right. I wonder if you have any theory about why we really do seem to punch above our weight in <laughs> not just in the acting side but in really so many areas of filmmaking. Well, it's interesting. I think Australia is has this interesting Venn diagram happening where we are equally influenced by the US and the UK but we're sitting below them literally and figuratively we're down there at the bottom of the world we're absorbing all this culture and and we sort of get to spit it back out our own way it's almost like we're students of these of these films and we spend a lot of time studying it because we have that that removal it's the actual literal distance and the metaphorical distance that we have on Hollywood that allows us to view it objectively. I think that's one thing, you know, like you absorb a lot of this Hollywood content as an outsider. It's not, it's not you know, when I would watch E.T., say, to pick a movie out of thin air, everything is foreign. If, if an American kid watches that movie, the, the foreign part of it is the alien. To me... Everything, the school, the school buses, you know, those yellow school buses, the way people talk, their kitchens, the toys, everything in that movie is foreign. It's not just the alien. So it, it gives it that degree of removal that allows you to study and absorb and maybe pick out your favourite parts. Um, and the other thing, I think, is that Australians just have this attitude that I, I don't think is well known to people. I don't know that people really know that much about Australia beyond the Crocodile Dundee cliches. And so I think in terms of Hollywood, I think it's beguiling to American casting directors when the the dude walks in that's not, like in the case of a male actor, a very masculine, like, no bullshit. It's, it's, it's not something they've seen before because Americans don't grow up watching Australians on television. They grow up watching other Americans. So when a guy walks into the casting office to audition and brings with him that Australian sort of no bullshit, relaxing, funny quality, it's like a thunderbolt to them. It's like, oh, my God, what is this guy doing? You know, he's just so real. You know, it's just like, yeah, mate, how are you going? You know, there's none of this like, oh, I just hope I get the part. It's it's like there seems to be this attitude of like I don't care if I get the part or something, and I think that that is beguiling for 
American casting agents. Well, great. Thank you so much, Lee. And we're sitting here, I should say, overlooking the beautiful 405 freeway mm, um, at, at, Ver at Variety's office. You can office. almost see the toxins. <laughs> the showbiz uh, newspaper Variety because you're so busy this week getting ready for this movie to finally be seen and I wish you the best of luck with it. And thank, thank you. you so much for talking to Aussies thank in Hollywood. Thank you. It's so inspiring to listen to someone like Lee, who broke through in Hollywood with nothing more than a passion for storytelling. It's also refreshing to hear how humble he's remained, and I can't wait to see what he delivers next. As long as he doesn't make me scream as much as I did in The Invisible Man, we'll be fine. Until next time, that's all from Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the app or look me up on iTunes.